If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about strategy. We're talking about the blue ocean strategy and what it is and what does it look like compared to a red ocean strategy? Is it just colors or is it more? Is it color theory? No, it's a little bit more to it than that. It's a really excellent strategy, a really excellent way of looking at things both in business and also in creativity and and just making sure things are coming together well and you're able to sell, in our case, games. But it's all sorts of really cool business concepts. And we're talking to Marvin Hegan from Nerd Lab Games. Marvin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gabe. Uh, Nice for having me. Yeah, man. Really glad that you're here. Uh, This is a topic that I I started to do a podcast on many moons ago. It was was a while back when I first ran into these concepts of red versus blue ocean. And it just never really fit. I couldn't really find the right person to talk to exactly. And then a while back, you sent me an email and you said, you said, hey, I'd love to come on the show. I got this new game coming to Kickstarter. And we chatted back and forth. And then one of the topics that you suggested was red versus blue ocean strategy and really talking about blue ocean and what that is. And it's like, yes, let's absolutely dive into that because I'm betting, I'm willing to bet that there are, are a lot of listeners who have either never heard of this concept at all or they've heard of it, but never, never in this context. They, they maybe have heard about it in their day job, their business, whatever, but not from a game designing, game publishing standpoint. So I'm really excited to dive deep into what it means and how uh, game designers and game publishers can use Blue Ocean strategy. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Yeah, um, my name is Marvin. I'm from Germany. And um, yeah, I'm game designer, game publisher, and podcaster as well on the Nerd Lab podcast. And um, yeah, three years ago, or let me, let's say three years ago, I um, started my journey as a as a game designer. And in the beginning, I was uh, just a player. And I thought I would like to make uh, more out of that. And yeah, started that journey. And I thought that there are many people out there that yeah want to be game designers as well. So I thought it would make sense to, um, yeah, to record my journey um, on a podcast and um, also share what I learned with other people. And um, yeah, that's what I did for the last um, three years. And um, I thought it would also be very helpful to um, yeah, interview people who are much smarter than me, who have designed uh, many more games than I have. And um, yeah, that's what I do on the podcast. And um, it was a crazy journey. It took me three years to publish my first game, um, which is uh, called Mindbug, yeah, which is uh, coming to Kickstarter on, on November 23rd. And um, yeah, that's where we are, where we are today. 
Very cool. And you've got a, a bit of a familiar story to, uh, to one I am very familiar with. And so, uh, yeah, I totally understand of being like, okay, I want to learn more. I want to be involved somehow. Let me go talk to people smarter than me who have done it a lot longer and better than me. And uh, let me just gain as much value as possible and then send that out to other people to learn from as well. And so that's, that's cool. You, you and I are, are traveling down the, the same road. And somehow, though, somehow your road diverged from mine because your first game, you're working with Richard freaking Garfield, one of the greatest game designers of all time, one of the Mount Rushmore game designers. So before we dive into the main topic, how in the world did you get on board on a team with Richard Garfield to design the, the first game that's going to be coming out? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question and a funny story. I have to say it all comes down to the podcast. In the end, if you, if you want to, to, to find one single aspect that made all of that possible, it must be the podcast. Because I um, met my, one of my co-designers, Christian Kudal, who was actually a listener of my podcast. And we formed together a mastermind group because we thought it would make sense to um, yeah, have a small group of people who are talking to each other about their games more frequently to get yeah, better and deeper um, input from, from other game designers. Um, so we, we formed a mastermind group and met, let's say, once a week to talk about uh, our different game ideas and game designs. And we identified pretty pretty quickly that we um, like the same kind of games. So um, tactical, strategic card games. So we started to design a game together a bit later. Yeah, that's how Mindbug was created initially. And then we worked on that game for, let's say, half a year or so. And then I invited Richard Garfield as a guest on my podcast. And um, yeah, we talked about different topics on the podcast. And at the end, I asked him, what is your advice uh, for new designers? And he said, um, you should play as many games as possible and you'd never stop playing um, new games to, to learn from them. And yeah, I, I took that as a chance and asked him after, after the show, um, hey, Richard, um, would, would you like to, to, to test Mindbug? Um, our game that we have um, we have come up with, and um, yeah, I had a a nice pitch I would say, and the pitch was actually that um, we have designed a mechanic that allows us to create crazy powerful creatures that will not break the game because our mechanic will automatically balance those powerful creatures, and we can do that without attaching any resource costs to those creatures. And that was basically my very short pitch. And he said, this must be an overstatement. And he was probably right. It is a bit of an overstatement, but I think the core of it is true. And, but I, um, his interest was, um, was awakened. And um, yeah, we, we sat down to play, to play a game on Tabletop Simulator. And after we played the first round of our um, early prototype, he said, um, I'm very impressed. Can we play again? And we did, and he was still impressed. And um, since then, we meet um, once a week to, yeah, to design Mindbug and, and and work on it. And I, I mean, I'm a Magic player since the '90s, and have probably played all of his games and um, love most of them. So it's a big, big, big pleasure for me to um, to work with Richard and also his partner um, Skeff Elias on Mindbug because um, they are they are just so much more experienced than, than, than I am. And I've learned so much from them. It's just a pleasure to work with them. Wow. That's awesome. And it just goes to show 
shoot your shot. I mean, throw the question out there. Ask people. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there because he could have easily said, no, you're not worth my time. You're not worth my energy or effort. I do not care about your silly little game. I do not want to hear about it. He could have said that, but he didn't. And it actually turned into you being able to work together. And so that's just excellent and uh, further proves the, the point I've made on this show so many times of you just got to put yourself out there and it's scary and you might get, you probably will get rejected, but you might not. And it might turn into something really special. So that's cool. Really happy for you and excited to to see the game and see what you and, and Richard and the other co-designers have, have all come up with. But uh, let's get into the topic at hand. So blue ocean strategy, and then that's opposed to red ocean strategy. Like let's get a good working definition with what we're even talking about. Tell me about both. Tell me about red and blue, and then we'll dive into why blue is the one that, that you wanted to uh, talk about for this episode and how it relates to publishing and designing that kind of thing. But for, first of all, what is Red Ocean Strategy? What is Blue Ocean Strategy? Yeah, so for me, Red and Blue Ocean Strategy is actually kind of a marketing theory. So I, I, I first came in con- into contact with those strategies um, at university. It was pretty much a hype topic back then in all of the consulting um, industry. So it was, I think the book came out in 2004 or so and um it basically is a marketing theory how to how to position um your company or how to create new products um for your company and they compared two different strategies the red ocean strategy versus the blue ocean strategy and um, why are they called red and blue ocean Um, red ocean basically is the ocean where all the competition takes place where all the sharks are and since the sharks are fighting over every little piece um, the ocean has turned red that's why it's called the red ocean and on the other side you have the blue ocean um, where you have almost no competition at all so um, you have this quiet uh, quiet water full of fish it's blue um, and no one is fighting over over the customers over there and the red ocean really focuses on markets that are already existing. You think about, okay, this is the market. These are the known boundaries in that market. And how could I beat the competition in the market? So what, I, do, I, what do I have to do to make sure that the customers um, choose my product, in that case, my game, over another game that they could choose that's in the shelf right next to it? And if you... If you look at different marketing strategies and so on, you often you often hear something like you need to have the best quality or you need to have the lowest cost to stand out from the competition. Then there is a defined market. There is also some kind of limitation in that market. So um, there is a limited growth potential in there. And since the market is already quite explored, also the profit, profits are really restricted there. So you could only gain a certain percentage of the market share that's the best you could reach typically that's the red ocean on the other side we have the blue ocean and the blue ocean really focuses on new markets where you have less competition or you in best case you try to avoid competition at all so how do you do that you try to to look not at an existing demand that's already there that everyone knows from the customers, you try to find something that is unsatisfied, a new demand that you can create with your customers. And instead of, let's say, trying to have the best quality or the lowest cost, you try to create a new value, something that is completely unique and new that has not been there before. 
And that's basically the main, the main difference. And if you achieve that, if you can find something like that, that's like the holy grail, I would say. Yes. Um, so if you can achieve that, then you have a, a market with, without boundaries, um, with a lot of opportunities and with a, um, yeah, significant potential for growth and profitability. Yeah, absolutely. And my understanding, if you just break it down in its simplest terms, is the red ocean is where you're just dealing with the market as it is. You're competing with everybody else, whatever. And then the blue side, you're creating things like you're, you're doing new things. You're trying to create new audiences, new markets, whatever it is. And it reminds me of, I think it's Henry Ford who said the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. And so the blue ocean strategy is, is really just creating the future that you want to be a part of. And it's just a cool way to do it. Now, let's talk about the pros and cons before we get into the game design, potion, and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about pros and cons of red versus blue, because it's not like, oh, red is always the worst option. You know, no one ever do red, always do blue. I mean, there's probably plenty of, of options for both sides and things you got to think through. And, and maybe one is better for whatever you're trying to accomplish or, or the other. So tell me maybe just briefly, quickly, the, the different pros and cons as far as the red versus blue. Yeah. So, what I what I see as one of the advantages of the Red Ocean is there is already um, a customer, and you can basically go out there and research the customer or ask the customer what they want. So there is the foundation that you can build upon. So it might be easier to get into those markets. So the the barrier of entry is a little bit lower because you do not have to make so much research to to, to know what the customers want. So I think of it as something like incremental um, innovations in those markets. Um, and if I compare this, for example, with game design, Red Oceans can be something very good. Let's say you have a product that's already um, a game that's already successful and you are creating an expansion for that. You will definitely not create a new blue ocean for that expansion. At least most of the time you won't do that you will utilize the red ocean that's already there, the customers that are already there. So if you have something that you can build up on, the red ocean is definitely an interesting market for sure. But if you want to build something completely new with a super high potential, I think the blue ocean is is very is very interesting, and I mean we we we, we paint the picture here between the the red ocean that's full of sharks and the blue ocean that's uh, that's com uh, completely without of without sharks. In reality, of course, it's not it's the world is not red and blue. Yeah, I think applying or trying to apply the blue ocean strategy is some kind of mind shift that can always be helpful that to try to think about uh, outside the box and try to not accept the boundaries that are given in the markets. I think that's something that's always helpful, even if you don't achieve your goal of finding a complete blue ocean. Right. I can also see how the blue ocean strategy can be a whole lot harder. It is much more challenging to come up with something new to create something that hasn't been done before because it hasn't really been done before. And so you're, you're having to push yourself, your imagination, your business practices, your game designs, whatever it is, in directions that maybe they haven't gone for other people. And so instead of being able to look around the red ocean market and go, oh, okay, here's a really great deck builder. I have an idea on how to do a better deck builder or how to do it in a different way. And there's already an established audience and things like that versus going over in the blue side of things and going, okay, I've got this brand new idea. I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> uh, it hasn't really been done before, at least not in this way. Uh, 
I'm, I'm hoping it's going to work, but maybe, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it, it, you know, people don't get it because it is new and they're so used to all the other things that you know have become just commonplace. And then you're bringing this new idea, this new concept into things. They're like, I don't, I don't understand. How does this work? And so is that also something just to be aware of? Is it, do you find it more challenging to be in that blue ocean? Um, I think it's definitely challenging. Um, because you you have to make decisions <laughs> on your own without a good framework of them, without experience of others. So um, let's say you need to you need to define your target audience. Let's say you you, you come up with a game that has a un completely unique um, taste, and you don't know is is this more suited for I don't know. Um, kids that around uh, that are around 12 or is it more like more for the um, the casual players or more for the, the really competitive players and um, since you do not have a game that you can compare it to um, you need to you need to do the hard work and find your target audience yourself and that's just one example um, of an aspect that you cannot really build up on so you're absolutely right I think um, blue ocean is something that is um, requires more work. Yeah, but also has a, um, a nice um, chance for growth there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's switch gears and dive more, more deeply into the game design, game publishing, game marketing aspects of things. Let's talk about using the Blue Ocean strategy even before you get going, before you sit down to create a prototype or to start designing mechanisms and putting them together with themes and stuff like that. What should you be thinking about even before you design to kind of stay within this, this Blue Ocean framework? The Blue Ocean strategy, that comes, it comes with five different steps. And what I have done um, in the past is I've tried to apply those steps to, to games, to, to creating games. Because it, if you look at the book it's, and the theories, it's more for, let's say, business. Um, it's more business evaluation. It's for products, but it's not very specific for, for games and, and board games. So um, what are those five steps? The first step is you define the markets that are relevant for you. The second step is you research um, the competitive products in those markets. Then at the third step, you extract the features in those, um, of those products in your market and create value curves for them. And then you break that up and create new value curves for your product in the fourth step. And The fifth step is you evaluate those 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 value curves and choose one that you want to want to um, want to work with. And um, we can totally go deeper into those five steps um, with some examples or so if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, absolutely. But first, tell me, like, give me a good definition of value curve. When you say that, what do you mean exactly? A value curve. It's like you create a canvas. Um, so you can think of it as a graph with an x-axis and a y-axis and on the x-axis you have attributes of the um, of the game and on the y-axis you have just a numeric value between 0 and 5 for example so um, let's say it is something that you want to track is um, the price point of the product or it could be the number of players could be something that you want to track or something like the complexity of the game could be something that you want to track or the game lengths or how fair a game is, the amount of luck in the game. So these kind of attributes that um, are in games um, can be used on the value curve of, uh, yeah, this defines more or less a value curve. If you then, um, you evaluate the different points. So let's say you take a game 
like Magic the Gathering and say, okay, its price point is pretty high because you have to buy a lot of boosters. That would be a, one data point in my in strategy canvas. Then you say, okay, complexity is also pretty high. That's also another data point in the um, in my canvas. And you say uh, tactical depths, it has a lot of tactical depths. That's also pretty high. Um, and then you you um, you combine those different points and draw a graph of them, a line, and you see um, a value curve. And you do this for different products. So we are talking actually about the third step already. Um, and then you see a difference between those products. And then you try to draw your own value curves for your product, for your game, um, to see how you can make things really different that no one else has done before. Gotcha. And how are you measuring these things? So you have your numbers along the y-axis. Is that just kind of a gut feeling? Or what are some of the, the ways that you get the actual data for that axis? Well, I mean... There is. This is where your, <laughs> where 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 really your um, imagination imagination comes in. You can do it by gut feeling. That's totally fine because you're um, a customer of those games, uh, the player of those games, or you have a have an opinion there and you want to build something that maybe suits another need. But you could also create your own measures for that. Um, let's say I mentioned complexity, for example. You could totally go to BoardGameGeek and look at the complexity value there for the different games that you are that you are build, uh, trying to um, to build in your in your strategy canvas. And um, there you have a very good measure. Um, that's just an ex just an example. Price can also be is something that is very um, very easy to measure. For example. Gotcha. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's back up. For a second, let's go back to your, your five steps. And, and don't feel like you have to go crazy in depth because there's quite a few more things I definitely want to get to and I don't want this to take up the entire podcast. Uh, but yeah, go back through your five steps and just kind of break those down, give some examples with, with how you know this framework works. Okay, so the first step really is you define the market. So um, you do this to narrow down your target audience in the very beginning and to identify potential competitor products. So I will I will use Mindbug as an example here because it makes um, it, it I think it will help you to understand how 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 we have done it. The primary mark you choose a primary market and the primary market for us really is um, is card games. It could be card games. It could be trading card games. For you, it could be worker placement games. It could be roll and write games. Um, it really is not so important what you choose here. It's um, it's important that you know what kind of market it is the primary market really is the kind of game genre that that you want to use as your main inspiration point let's let's call it like that then you define a secondary market that's um that's products that are or games that are similar to those games so from for mindbug i have chosen the trading card game market as the um, primary market and as a secondary market, um, I've chosen digital card games, digital trading card games, for example, because it's kind of a complementary product for it. And then there is also, you can also bring in tertiary markets. Um, there you think about something that, what do players actually may do before they buy a product or after they, they bought a product? And do they buy um, things on top of that? For trading card games, this could be sleeves or box inlays or, or whatsoever. So you can you can really um, think out of the box here as well. And once you have defined those those markets, you try to identify. So that's what I have done: um, two or three games per market um, that you want to identify uh, to to research a bit deeper. So um, I have chosen Magic and Keyforge, for example, for the for the uh, 
collectible or trading card game market um, and also games like Hearthstone or Runeterra for the secondary market. And um, for the ter uh, tertiary market, I have actually thought about mm, using games that are a little bit different, but um, that also are consumed by the players in the, at the same time spot. So sometimes a player who plays Magic also plays Sushi Go or Exploding Kittens. So I've also um, um, looked at those casual games as well. And that was um, the, the, the second step, really um, researching, researching those games. And in the third step, you extract the main features of those games. And you can do that in different in different ways you can just write down on a piece of paper whatever you uh, you know about those games so what you like about those games or what other people like about those games but we have we have done it a bit different so i went to um, to reddit and asked the community um, and i asked them what do you like and dislike about trading card games and the responses i i received were mind they were mind blowing really so uh, it's incredible what you can get, what, what kind of market research you can get from just asking people. So all of, the, I mean, that, that, that Reddit post, I don't know, it got 100 responses or so. And what I did, I put all of those responses into an Excel spreadsheet and clustered them. And then I got a very good overview of the different attributes of those games that people like and dislike. But in the first step, I only used the different attributes, and I broke that down into the uh, into the the strategy canvas that I just explained to you before, into that graph with the x-axis and the y-axis. And you can basically imagine that those different lines for the different games looked pretty different. So, for example, an exploding kittens or sushi go is way easier than a game like Magic: The Gathering or Keyforge or Hearthstone, for example. So I got those different curves in the strategy canvas that looked pretty, pretty different. And that was my, my starting point. So I had this graph with different games represented as lines in this graph and different attributes like price, like complexity, tactical depth, replayability, fairness, and game length, for example. Those are very generic. But these are, the, these are more or less the ones that are already clustered. So below complexity, I had, for example, 20 responses from people who said what they dislike about complexity in those games or what they like about it. That's the third step. And the fourth step really is the important one. And that's the important one. And I think we can go into detail here. And you can also ask questions um, about that because I think it's really important. You now have this value curve for, for, for a game or, let's say, a market segment of games. And now you think about four different things that you could do. You could reduce some of those attributes. You could eliminate them completely. Or you could raise some of them. Or you could create new one. Reduce them, eliminate some, raise them, or create some. And we can do this as an um, basically... Let's take deck building as an example. Deck building is a perfect example for a blue ocean. So Dominion created a, a, new, a new blue ocean with their product. And how did they achieve that? They achieved that by raising one, one aspect of, of those games. And that's the deck building part of it. So 
instead of having the deck construction before the game, they raised the, raised it and increased it um, to their main part of it. And I could totally see that as a, in a in a strategy canvas, for example. So that's that's the four steps: eliminating, reducing, raising, or creating new ones. Awesome. Okay, that was a ton of information, but I think uh, it, well, no, it's good because you know a great thing about podcasting is people can go back and re-listen to things over and over again and just make sure they they catch it all. Uh, but there is there does seem to be a good bit going on, but. Tell me, how complex is this really? Because, I mean, you start hearing all of that, and here's the different steps, and this, that, and the other. It can sound complicated, but is it is it really that complicated? Or how, how could you help somebody understand that it's maybe not quite as complex as it sounds? It's super easy. It, I know it sounds complicated because, um, yeah, it was a lot of text that I just, <laughs> just, uh, just to- told you. But actually, in the end, it's just writing down what you like about those games, clustering it, and um, putting it into... Um, into a nice form that's it and then you will the, the good thing is you visualize it you don't have it in your head also you visualize it and you will see it in the craft that all of those games they look pretty similar if you put magic hearthstone keyforge all of those games if you put them on top of each other the lines will look very similar and if you create a game that is on the same line that those where those games are you will not be successful or you will need a lot of marketing power to be successful. And that's, that's, that's the super interesting part of it. It helps you to visualize where you can differentiate. Um, not so much how, but it helps you identify the spots where you could differentiate. And that's what you do in the fourth and the fifth step. You really, you try, you, you, you draw those lines in there where you think, okay, this could be, um, how would a, what actually you can just draw a line in there and think about okay wh- how would a product look like that follows this line? And I make an example here. So let let's say we draw we tr- uh, we, we use the attributes that I just mentioned with price and complexity and stuff like that, and we we use something like okay it has a super low price, it has a super super low complexity, but um, a very high tactical depth and um, a very high replay replayability, for example. So. I just made that up and you, you draw that line, but you could think of a game and you could start your thinking process of, okay, how do I need to create my game that it fulfills those those attributes in this way? Gotcha. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And you left off the, the, the really fun part is you have to play these games first before you can you know get the ideas that need to go on to the graphs. And so there you go. You, you get to enjoy these games, probably really good games if you're looking at things that are doing well on the market. So I think that's also... Uh, part of this process as well. All right, so let's uh, kind of shift gears just a little bit because I know with Mindbug, you did not start off with the Blue Ocean strategy and then design the game. You already had a game design working, you're working on the project and then started applying these Blue Ocean strategy concepts to it. So tell me about doing it that way because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are like, well, I've already got a game going. I don't, I don't you know, I can't go back in time and, and think about these things and then design. I'm already designing. And so what would be your advice in that situation? Yeah. So um, I have to say we I, I I applied it relatively soon in the design process, but not before we designed the game. So what you can totally do, you can basically follow the same the same approach, um, but instead of drawing new lines without a good idea that you already have in mind, you can draw the line of your product in there, and you will immediately see how it behaves in comparison to your main competitors. And if you then identify that you are, your line looks basically exactly the same, then you might still, in the, during the design process, um, 
think about how could I differentiate here? Or what could I add on top to stand out from the crowd? Or maybe what, that's always the, in, the most interesting part, really, is when you think about what can I eliminate? And um, that's also in the design process and in the, doing the playtesting phase. That's something, elimination is maybe the most important aspect, I think. And um, that's something that you can totally do later in the process as well. Yeah, that's definitely good news for people who uh, have been designing a game for quite some time that you can still apply these concepts. And l let's talk about how you apply Blue Ocean to game design specifically. I want to talk about marketing and publishing and things like that in a minute. But right now, just from a game design standpoint, what's your advice? How do you integrate Blue Ocean into that? I have to say there is not much more to it than I, than I already explained. So let's say you, you want really to to eliminate something though so it's for me it's more like a more like a guiding star it's not like that there is a mechanic coming out of that process that you can use um, it's more like okay i have seen that there is a white spot in my in my value curves that i've drawn and that spot says okay i there could be a trading card game or a strategy card game with a low complexity but also with a tech, with a high tactical depth, and how can I how can I achieve that? So I know, I know my goal. The 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 Blue Ocean Thirty has created the goal for me, and what I really like doing the game design process when you have this very clear goal that you are designing to. All of your decisions that come afterwards will be easier, or even un uh, un uh, unnecessary. Because if I if I have identified that. I want to reduce the complexity of those games. And later in the design process, I have the decision to make, um, should my creatures have just a power value or power and toughness? It's easier to make that decision if you have a guiding star that tells you, my main goal is to reduce complexity. So let's try it in the beginning with just a power value. And I think for me, these, uh, the, the Blue Ocean strategy gives, gave me those, um, those, those guiding those guiding lights um, that I could design to. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And again, I feel like a lot of this is just beginning with the end in mind, you know, stepping back from getting so caught up in, in just designing that, that you forget that there are other things to be aware of, especially if you want your game to be published. Now, if you just want to play your game with you and your family and your dog and, and that's it, then that's fine. But if you really want to create a product, you really want to create something that goes out into the marketplace and does well and a lot of people get to enjoy it and engage with it and it's interesting and new and different and, and publishers are going to you know listen to your pitches and things like that. These are things to just be aware of in, in all aspects. Uh, before you design, while you're designing, thinking through different things. Because a publisher is thinking, uh, hopefully, is thinking these things, right? They're wondering, okay, where does this fit into the market? How is this going to fit into my lineup? How does this fit with the other games that I have in my catalog? Like, they're already thinking in, in these terms. And so for you to begin with that end in mind and apply that to your game design concepts, it, it just makes a lot of sense. If you're, But again, if you're not trying to design a product, then it's a little bit different. So I do want to make that... Uh, make that clear to people, you know, you don't have to do this, but if you want to make a product, it's definitely something you should, you should, you should think about. All right. So anything else from the design side of things or, or, you know, really before the game becomes a full on product, anything else you want to bring up as far as, uh, as it relates to blue ocean? I think the aspect of it that made this really successful for us, I would say. So why we were able to use it was 
the market research that we went out there and asked the people. And that's the data that we got there. It was so important for us. Not only did it help us to create these these different attributes and evaluate them so that we we knew so we said okay many people talked about the complexity of those games but we saw that 70% or 80% or 90% talked about the complexity from a negative perspective and we knew that we should eliminate it so that was very important for us but on top of that um we also learned the language of our customers so not only did we analyze um what they said we also analyzed how they said it and we could reuse their language when we um when we talk about our product our game and that was um another aspect of that that i think it's very important and that would i would um yeah i would um recommend to to other game designers that they go out there and yeah try to talk to other people um in the internet about um what those people like about the game genre that they are designing for yeah, absolutely. All right, let's switch gears. Let's talk more from the product side of things, the publishing and the marketing side of things. And I was actually, as you were talking just just now, I was reminded of a video I saw in the last couple couple of days or so, and it was this guy talking about how to stand out and how to get noticed. And his point was that different is better than better. And I was like, oh, it's really interesting. And he was talking mainly in about like the the way your packaging looks, like the outside, like the first thing people look look at the first thing they see their first impression and how to stand out on the shelf or how to stand out online you know amongst a, a bazillion other products and it was and his point was be different you know you, if everything is red then do something that's green if everything has a person on it we'll do something that has a dog on it and it doesn't matter you know, like don't worry about being better don't don't be the better red option be a green option and i was like oh it's really interesting and i think seth godin talks about this too with his purple cow mentality is like if you're looking at a field full of cows and they're all black and white and then there's a purple one you're going to notice the purple one like that's the one you're going to see you're not going to really notice any of the rest of them they're all going to kind of blend together and it's like oh yeah there's a bunch of cows oh there's a purple one and then that's the one you see this one you're going to talk about and so like be the purple cow and so different is better than better and so anyway how does that apply in this this case though as far as blue ocean it's uh super super funny that you bring that topic up because um <laughs> we have a discussion in our team about that Christian Kudal, uh, the co-designer of the game Mindbug, he he doesn't like the um, the 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 logo um, of the game, which is um, it's basically Mindbug written in yellow, and but then is there is an actual Mindbug around those uh, this color, which is a kind of a an alien-looking uh, octopus with a lot of tentacles, and it's really pink. It really is pink. And he said all the time when we when we when we when we chose that logo, he said. You cannot make a game with a pink logo. There has never been a game with a pink logo. We cannot be successful with it. And um, I mean, I was, I had another opinion there. Um, but since now, I think he doesn't like the logo. Um, but um, I think it helps us to stand out. And um, we hope to be the first um, game with a pink logo that it will be successful. So I think it's very important to be, uh, to, to, to stand out from the crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And when someone is scrolling the Kickstarter marketplace and there's so many thumbnails of the different games, the different projects that are live, they're hopefully going to notice yours because it is different. Uh, one thing I learned with my my uh, current Kickstarter campaign is that in the Facebook ads that we were running before the campaign launched, you know, just trying to build up an email list and get people aware of the game projects and different things like that, we had three different 
images that we were using. And the one that had a bunch of red in it, it performed the best by far. It, it doubled the conversion rate of any other uh, image that we tried. And so when we were using, or when, when I was creating the Kickstarter campaign, the actual project, uh, I used that image as the main thumbnail that when people were scrolling through the marketplace on Kickstarter, that hopefully that red is in the, in the way it contrasts and the, the image, and it's got a really cool monster that's there. It's like, and the art is just excellent that hopefully people will see that and click on it because it, it draws them in. And we had some data to look at as far as like, well, this is what they're clicking on on Facebook. Hopefully it's what they'll click on on Kickstarter and, and using color and things like that. And so I think that's another thing just is like you're saying earlier is market research and just kind of putting things out there and seeing what people click on, especially if it's more than just, asking people, hey, which one do you like best? But when you can actually put things out there to perfect strangers that you know are, are just out in on the internet scrolling through and you can get some data from them, then you've got some really helpful information that will hopefully uh, be able to, to help you in, in other ways like it, like it did for me. And so, yeah, hopefully that pink stands out for you and, and, and does something uh, somewhere. And I guess we'll know uh, by the end of your Kickstarter campaign whether it was a good choice or not. And either you will be vindicated or your, your co-designer, your friend will be vindicated, but one way or another will... We'll find out, but uh, let's, let's keep talking about publishing. What else? What are some other things just to be aware of from the product side, the publishing standpoint, as far as Blue Ocean? Well, what I think was very important for us, we applied this Blue Ocean strategy. It's not something that we had in mind all the time. It's something we did once. And what came out of it was more the guiding star that I mentioned. And we eliminated, for example, complexity. And we created something new, and that is our new mind bug mechanic. And that really helped us be able to reduce complexity that much, but also keeping tactical depths. So in order to achieve this combination, we needed to, we needed to create something new. And what I, here comes here comes the twist to um, to publishing, because if I when you when you do that, when you create something new, and maybe you eliminated something else, it's very important to make this your core message for the future. Because if you found something that makes your game different, it's important to make this stand out to everyone so that everyone understands what makes your game different. And we made this by, um, yeah, making this mechanic really, we designed everything, the whole theme of the game around this mechanic. Um, because we knew that this mechanic is unique People have not seen it before, and it's a lot of fun. And that's what's, it, it is what makes our game different. And um, so we said, okay, we need to theme the game around that and make this our, our core marketing message as well. So um, it can also be your guiding star through, um, through the publishing process to the marketing process of, your, um, um, of putting your game out there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let me get your advice on this because... Based based on what you were just just talking about, I was thinking through. Okay, one of the biggest challenges of doing anything new is that it's new, and that you have to explain it to people in clear terms so that they understand it. And and you don't have very long. I mean, you've got seconds now of, of people's attention span before they keep just scrolling on by. And so, what's your advice on explaining something clearly that might be brand new to someone? So, if we think back when when Donald X Vaccarino was was you know, putting a dominion out into the world to explain deck building in five seconds or less, or however much time you want, to, you want to put on it, but you don't have much time. So how do you do that effectively? What's your advice? What are some things that maybe you're doing or, or learn from anecdotes, anything like that? Yeah. So we went with Mindbug to uh, the Essen Spiel Fair and explained it to, let's say a thousand people there. And there's something that I learned 
while pitching the game so often <laughs> in those three, four days. Um, and that goes in directly in the direction of your question. People, you need to find some kind of common spot with the people you are talking to. So I started all the time with asking the people what kind of games they, they know. So do you know Magic the Gathering? Do you know Keyforge? Do you know any of those games? And I changed my marketing message, my how I explained the game, how I explained what is new about those games, depending on what those, those people knew already. Um, and once I found a game that they, that they know, I used that game to explain Mindbug in 10 seconds or so. Yeah. So let's say they knew magic. I, I said, okay, Mindbug is basically the cocaine of magic, the distilled distilled magic experience in a small box. <laughs> Can you please put that on the outside of the box? <laughs> the cocaine of magic. I think that'll be a good tag on. <laughs> Actually, um, it's not something that I, I came up with. That was one player of the game. We asked them to um, if they would like to record a, a, a small uh, video after they played the game. And that's something that, that, that he came up with. And I... I stole it from him and used it on the last day of the um, of the fair. So for, before that, I used the condensed version of Magic in a single box. <laughs> gotcha. All right, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so you have to talk to people in a language that they understand. And um, if you found a common game that they know already, it makes it much easier. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's something I find myself doing a lot when talking to playtesters and also publishers and saying, hey, this is kind of like Pandemic, but with this twist or these totally different mechanisms. And, but it kind of gives someone an anchor to have at least an idea of what you're going to be talking about. Because you could be talking to somebody and they're thinking, okay, is this like Monopoly? Or is this like Twilight Imperium? And every game in between is, is viable. It's, it's possible, right? But when, when you get them, give them that anchor and you say, no, this, it's kind of like Magic the Gathering, but, and then you kind of tell them how it's different from Magic the Gathering, it, it works out really, really well. And I like how you're doing it. It's it just asking the question, hey, have, have you ever played this game? Oh, you have? Okay, well, it's like this, except that. Uh, I think that's a really good way to do it. Uh, and especially in, in marketing and putting things out there, and I think it's fine. Just tell people, yeah, it's like it's like Magic the Gathering, but, and then and having, in, in as far as like on your Kickstarter page or in your uh, press releases or, or things like that. Anything else from the marketing standpoint that stands out or anything else you want to highlight uh, with marketing? Um, no. Actually, I think that's, um, that's everything that I would like to, to mention when it comes to Blue Ocean strategy, let's say like that. Okay. Anything else uh, as far as Blue Ocean, whether it's design, publishing, any little anecdotes, any other stories that will just kind of reinforce what we're talking about? Mm, I, I would just, one thing that I would like to mention here is um, it may sound complex and boring because it's, it's, it, more, it comes from this business angle, Yeah but it actually doesn't have to be boring. It really, it is just um, thinking about games and bringing it in, it helps you to get a bit of structure. Actually, I had a lot of fun applying it um, and I think it can be fun. And yeah, you should just, you should just try it. It just takes a couple of, uh, um, of, of minutes or maybe a few hours to do it. And, um, yeah, and then you can, can see if you want to use it or not. Yeah, absolutely. Remind me again the name of the book. I think it's just called Blue Ocean Strategy. Is that right? Yes, it's called Blue Ocean Strategy. I think it's from um, Chan Kim and Rene Moborgny. I, I may have butchered the name. Sorry for that. <laughs> easy, easy for you to say. Uh, you sound like me trying to pronounce European names. Uh, <laughs> awesome. 
Well, Marvin, this has been excellent. Like we've been talking about, you've got Mindbug up on Kickstarter at the, at the moment. And so give me like the two minute elevator pitch for that. Yeah, Mindbug is a dueling card game where we try to condense all the moments that we love from playing games like Magic and Keyforge and all those strategy card games. We try to condense everything into a small box. And we made this game completely fair, balanced, and it's not pay to win. So we play from a single box. You distribute 10 cards per player. It's just 10 cards per player per match. And I exp- I, I promise it feels like with a full blown deck of any of those strategy card games. Very cool. Well, Marvin, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with Mindbug on Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?